Well, we are going to be talking about a, uh, a fringe uh, a part of the Bible today, and really that leads into what I believe is a big issue for us, um, not just as the American church, but a big issue for us in culture in general, and I think we have a big problem, and that is a demon problem. I think we can fall between one to two camps, and that is um, it doesn't exist to I am overly excited about it. And really this idea comes from C.S. Lewis in his book entitled The Screwtape Letters when he writes on page three, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race falls about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I believe that we still fall into those two camps today. And the first camp is what demons? Like what, what demons? Demons don't exist. We pay no mind to them in the spiritual realm. And instead what we do is we pull the ostrich and we hide our heads in the sands and we pretend like these things don't exist. There are no demons. So if there are no demons, they cannot get me. But we can say something doesn't exist and it actually exists and then it can still harm us. Um, case in point, you can say, I don't believe in traffic. And then you can go stand out in the middle of 163rd and Pat Tillman, um, you know, when our church and CCV lets out. And guess what? You're going to get God, okay? They're going to run you over. You can say something doesn't exist, and it still exists. But I understand this line of thinking, right? Because this line of thinking is created because we have identified something that we are not comfortable with and things that we are uncomfortable with we do not want to pay attention to we also don't want to pay attention to things that we have difficulty wrapping our minds around and so i hope that within the text today jesus will kind of make light of the demonic for us there is a second camp and that is equally as unhealthy and that is the oh demons camp the oh demons camp is overly excited about this idea that there is a spiritual realm and we want to dive into it every chance that we get and I would say that there is a, a biblical basis for diving into and understanding the spiritual realm I certainly think that the biblical authors understood the spiritual realm but there is a point to where it takes more of our attention and actually becomes our worship more than the God who rules and reigns over the spiritual realm and so I think this really all started right around 1969 Right around 1969, a movie was released by the name of Rosemary's Baby. Anybody remember that movie? All right. Anybody watch that movie? No. Uh, pff, yeah. Why would we? We love Jesus. All right. Absolutely. It was followed up by a movie that um, I think probably did more damage, got us more interested in the demonic, into the uh, demon possession uh, variety of movies, and that was a movie called The... Man, all right. Anybody see that one? Don't be lying. I know everybody saw that one. Well, the Exorcist came out in 1973, and our fascination with the demonic has been booming ever since. I tried to figure out how many demonic movies had been made since these two were released, and I lost track after around 30-something. That's not including all the uh, TV shows that are demonic. That's not including all of the books that cover this subject. And so today, 
I hope, and my prayer for this service is that Jesus sheds his light on the demonic, that he shows us that he has authority over it. He shows us that he is worthy of our attention over it, and he shows us that only he can save us from it. Our sermon in a sentence, our big idea, our main point this morning is that Jesus has authority to confront and conquer demons, to clean and commission his followers. We are going to be in Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 today. What we see is that Jesus and his disciples set off from Capernaum after being absolutely tired. Jesus falls asleep. He's woken up in the boat. The disciples say, Jesus, Jesus, wake up. This storm is going to kill us all. Do you not even care for us? Jesus just wakes up, calms, stills, hurricane force winds with a sentence showing us that he has authority over nature. They then land in this region of uh, this country of the Gerasenes, and we see now that Jesus is showing out of, this is the second out of five instances where Jesus is showing us he has authority over something, and today he is showing us that he has authority over the demonic. So we read in verses one through five, it says, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had, uh, had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What we see in this text this morning, verses 1 through 5, is our first point, and that is that Jesus confronts the demonic. We start in verse 1. It says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, it is important for us to note this because this was a Gentile area. This was an area filled with non-Jewish people. And that is important because in Judaism, for someone to touch something that is dead would have defiled that person. So who is with Jesus? What is Jesus? Jesus is a Jew. The disciples, these 12 men following Jesus, were Jewish as well, at least 11 of the 12. One of them, he's doing his best to really play the part, but we're not really sure where he's at at this point. That's Judas, by the way, in case you're wondering. So Jesus is being followed by these Jewish men. He comes across this man who not only is defiled because he has touched something that is dead, but he lives amongst the tombs and he lives in the mountains. So he's not just touching something that is dead. He is literally living amongst the dead. And here what we see is one of the strategies of the enemy when it comes to the image of God being placed into man. And here we see that the enemy is attempting to defile the image of God in man. But in all of this, Jesus never winces once. Jesus never backs away from this man who has an unclean spirit. Jesus never backs away from this man that is defiled for living amongst these things. Jesus instead confronts the unclean things within him. Verse 2, it says, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. That word unclean spirit basically means that this man was demon-possessed, that the enemy was in complete control of this man's body and that had some consequences that had some things that changed within this man's life and we see that in verses three and four we see that this demon possessed man now possesses supernatural strength 
We're going to cover a few rules and regulations here within the scripture today as we cover them or as we read through them. But basically there are rules, there are guidelines within the spiritual realm that these things have to live by. And this is one of the first ones is that when someone is possessed by a demon, sometimes they gain supernatural strength. So we ask ourselves the question, well, how is that? How do they get supernatural strength? And to understand that, we have to ask ourselves, well, what are demons? Demons, as we read in Revelation, are fallen angels. A third of the heavens uh, align themselves with Satan against the will of the Father for what he wanted done in the world and said, okay, God wants us to serve these things that are creation, just like we are, but they actually have the image of God within them, and we are now jealous because we do not have the image of God, and now we have to, sub- we have to submit ourselves under the authority of these things that have the image of God. Now, we're going to align ourselves with Satan, and we are going to rebel. Well, then those angels become fallen angels, and we refer to fallen angels as demons. Now, one angel could outpower thousands of men. These guys were super, super strong. That strength doesn't change when they go to a fallen nature, and so now you have this presence, this strength living inside this fallen angel, this demon that is now represented inside, now living inside of this man. He has superpowers. But we also see that this is probably the reason that he was driven out of the place that he called home. This guy was greatly feared in the town where people were just terrified of him, and they tried to put him in chains, and they tried to put him in shackles, and they tried to bind him, but what happened every single time? With his Hulk smash strength, he absolutely broke through them every single time. No one stood a chance against this man. It said no one could subdue him. And it's in this that we see the enemy's second attack on the image of God. And that is that the enemy attempts to deface the image of God in man. But even as strong as this guy is, even as superpowered, as demonically possessed, as dirty, as filthy, as unclean, as defiled as this man is, Jesus is still fearless. Jesus is still not cowering. Jesus is still not backing down. And Jesus doesn't back down from our defilement. Jesus also doesn't back down from the dirtiness within our lives. Jesus also doesn't back down from the power of whatever he finds living inside of us. When it comes to Jesus, no sin that we ever commit could be a surprise to him. No sin that we ever commit could be too much for him to forgive. No unclean anything can remain in us when Jesus says go because what Jesus does is he comes into the house, he packs up whatever is in there, he scrubs that thing down, he cleans it up real good, he takes all of those boxes, he puts them on the curb, the trash truck comes, it takes them, it's a bulk pickup day, and he takes all the junk in our life and he gets rid of it. But he doesn't just leave the house clean, he invites a friend to move in and that friend is the Holy Spirit. And so for us, we should not fear because now we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us and the Holy Spirit for us is the thing that seals us until the day of the Lord's return. And so there is no demonic power, there is no demonic possession that can happen in the life of the believer because we have been sealed by the Spirit. And the one that lives in us is the power of God and can outpower these things time and time and time again because God And as we see, God and man, Jesus, this morning, has authority over the demons. And so we don't have to fear. But that doesn't mean that for us as believers today that we should not be careful. 
because we may not be able to be possessed by these things, by these demons, but we can be influenced by demonic things. It means we should be careful what we hear. We should be careful what we listen to. We should be careful what we watch. We should be careful what we allow to speak over our lives so freely. And we should put those things in check because we can still be influenced. Verse 5, it says that he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And it is in this we see another attempt of the enemy to destroy the image of God. We see here that the act of cutting is nothing new for our modern day culture. This isn't something that just angsty teenagers do as, as a phase in their life. We see that cutting is actually a strategy of the enemy that hasn't changed from day one. When we read John 10, 10, it says a thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. John 8, 44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. The enemy's plan in this man's life was to torment this man until the very end of his life. But there's something important that we cannot miss here. And that is here at the end towards verse 5. What is important is that the enemy was not successful. The enemy, no matter how many demons were within this man, was not able to take his life because of one thing. Because this man met another man. And that man was fully man. But he wasn't just that. He was fully God as well. We know him as Jesus. And Jesus changes everything in this demon-possessed man when he confronts the demonic in his life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verses 6 through 13. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you. That's, that's really fancy vocabulary for demons right there. I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out into the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and herd. Uh, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. Second point today that we see in this text is that Jesus conquers the destructive. Jesus conquers the destructive. We see in verses 6 and 7 that the demons recognize Jesus for who he truly is. What, are, what, are the, what is the question that these demons ask Jesus? What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So what we see here is that these demons know who Jesus is. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, notes this in his letter in James 2.19. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what we learn here is that demons actually have really great theology really great monotheistic theology. They probably have great Trinitarian theology as well. What we see here is that there are no atheists in the spiritual realm. We see that anything within the spiritual realm sees Jesus for who he truly is. Jesus, the son 
of the Most High God. And here's what is so crazy to me, is that these demons fall down before Jesus, and they notice, recognize, identify him for who he truly is. But the disciples, the 12 men that have been following him from the very beginning of his ministry so far, have seen him heal people, have seen him cast demons out before, now have seen him calm hurricane winds, and time after time after time again, they just keep missing. And again, I think the same is true for us. I think Jesus has probably shown up time and time and time again in our lives, and we just don't see him for who he truly is. Now, there is a time where this clicks for the disciples, and there is a time where this clicks for us. And when that clicks, when we see Jesus for who he truly is and we respond to that in faith, something happens in us. And that thing that happens in us is something that separates us so far from the demons. And we see here that they know all about Jesus, but they do not follow him. They have a head knowledge of Jesus without a matching heart knowledge. Now, compared to the demons, I would say we probably know very little about Jesus. But when it clicks, when we accept him as our savior, when we believe in him for the forgiveness of our sin, when we confess him as Lord of our lives, that means submitting our lives to him in everything we do, making him master. There is something that changes in us and that, that knowledge that is just stuck up in our heads goes about 12 inches down south into our hearts. And we enter into relationship with our God, with our king. And we become saved from the sin that we have committed. We can know all we want about Jesus. That doesn't save us. It is our submitting ourselves to his authority, following him as Lord, as master, placing our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins by his work on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection that we find ourselves that changes everything for us. Verses 8 through 13, we see that Jesus cast out the spirits. Now this is big, all right? This isn't just one demon living inside of this man. I said spirits. Up to this point, this, this man is defiled. He has an unclean spirit. But we, what is about to be uh, revealed to us is that there's more than just one in this man. This man runs to Jesus, rushes to him, and the demons within him plead at Jesus' feet, do not torment us as Jesus was casting them out. At this time, Jesus asked them a question. That question is, what is your name? And in that name, we find out this is not just one demon in this man, but many, so many demons that the demon-possessed man responds, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, this name, Legion, is a military term used in Rome to represent a contingency of 6,000 soldiers. So now, let's look at what that name means. What is your name? I am Legion, for we are many. Now we realize that this man is not inhabited by just one demon. This man has at least 6,000 demons living within him. Now we think of the power of one fallen angel within one person and the damage and the destructions that that would cause so much that he needs to be pushed out of a town. Now multiply that by 6,000. That is the power of the demonic within this man. And Jesus still does not back down. Jesus still pursues this man. 
witness in this conversation between Jesus and the demons within this man that we get some demonic rules and regulations that have to be followed within this unseen realm. What does this demon plead? He says, do not send us out of the country. Now we have to ask ourselves, why is this a concern? Now it's thought that demons work geographically. That's an idea from Dr. Michael Heiser. We see that in Daniel 10 verses 13 through 21 where Daniel is praying. God answers his prayer with a yes. He sends the angel Michael to answer that prayer. The angel Michael is then caught up within this region because a demon by the name of the prince of Persia is wrestling with him, contending with him to keep God's yes from getting to Daniel thought that that demon resided over that area. He was in charge of that area. Why are these guys freaking out? Don't send us out of this country. Maybe they're freaking out because this is the place that they have been assigned to torment. They also say, send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. Why is this a concern? This is a concern because this shows us demons need a host. They can be moved. They can be transferred. But there's something that they need to live inside. And then verse 13. The reason why all these rules, all these regulations are actually important in the first place, you see that these demons ask Jesus for permission. And it says, so he gave them permission. Why is this a concern? This is a concern because demons recognize and are subject to spiritual authority. That means that they had to get permission from the person in charge before they could go on a field trip. Okay, uh, simply put, this is what is taking place here is this theology known as my dad is stronger than your dad theology. Okay, I want you to think back to uh, your childhood. You're playing on the playground. Um, hopefully you had playgrounds to play on. Maybe you're just playing with a friend. Maybe it was a toy that you were fighting over. I'm not really sure what it was, but you wanted to play with that toy, and you knew you were going to get in trouble if you got in some fisticuffs with that person that you were arguing about that one thing over. And so what did you do? You probably did the same thing that we did when I was growing up in daycare, and you said, hey, you better knock that off. Hey, you better let me play with this. Hey, you better give me that because my dad is stronger than your dad because my dad is badder than your dad because my dad is going to come here and he's going to kick your behind and probably your dad's behind okay um we had this one boy named nicholas and nicholas he just made up all kinds of crazy fantasies about his dad now the thing is with uh with nicholas's dad is he built him up over and over and over with lie after lie after lie to where at the end of the day at daycare at children's world i thought Dwayne the rock johnson was going to walk in the door and he was going to fight me and i was going to have to embarrass him in front of all those other little kids that's not what happened all right, Nicholas's mom came to pick him up. He was safe. But what we see here is this is not any lies, any threats, anything that is woven together as some fantasy that is presented before this demon because Jesus is operating solely out of the will of the Father and he has the power of the Father within him. Then that means that these demons recognize that he is the one that has authority. He is the one that is in charge. And all 6,000 of the demons within this man, ultra powerful, can break chains, break shackles, shatter them into pieces, has to submit, has to be subdued by the authority of Jesus. Jesus gives him permission. Now, as Jesus gives these demons permission, these 6,000 plus demons, what happens? They go into 2,000, 2,000 plus pigs. 
they then run off the side of a cliff, and we can take two things away from this. And the first thing is, don't be mad at Jesus for the fate of babe pig in the city as they went on a little trip off the side of this cliff. It was not Jesus that told those pigs to jump over that cliff. It was the demons. We also see that God cares for humans far more than any of the rest of creation. And so I I apologize to the dog lovers in this room. Uh, All dogs go to heaven. That's heresy, okay? That that was not a uh, biblically-based movie. What God is concerned about, Jacob just got it. (laughs) What God is concerned about is his image within his image bearers, and that is people. God cares about man. God cares about woman. He cares about that part, his image-bearing side of creation. Now, lastly, we see that Jesus cast these thousands of demons into these couple of thousands of pigs, and we see that he does it with just a command. It was just a command that he gave to the sea, and we saw his authority over nature, and it was still. It is a command that he gives to these demons, and they are cast out. The exorcist of this day would have had elaborate rituals. They would have had elaborate incantations that were necessary to get demons out of a person, out of one thing into another. What we see in the life of Jesus is that at a sentence, they have to flee. And what we see in that is that Jesus, once again, has authority. And so what does Jesus do with that authority? How does that authority that Jesus has change this demoniac's life? We see that in verses 15 through 17. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw a demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. We see a lot of things here, but what we see more than anything is our third point today, and that is that Jesus cleans us up. Jesus cleans us up. This is big news, and this big news that just took place, as we see in verse 14, does not stay quiet long. Look, these herdsmen had just watched their livelihood run over a cliff. They go into town. They rally everybody up. If you've ever seen the movie Shrek, they're going to go hunt the big green ogre down. And that big green ogre in this situation is Jesus. These guys are furious. Why is that? Because that was their source of living. Not only was that their source of living, that was their source of eating. And it was a bunch of pigs, which means it was a bunch of bacon and a bunch of pork chops that just ran off of that cliff. These guys, again, were Gentiles. Gentiles. That's a hybrid. <laughs> they were not Gentiles. They were Gentiles. And that meant that they could enjoy this kind of food. So they are rightfully very, very angry. What did they see when they arrived on their hunt for Jesus, they see a man that was made clean. They see a man that is sitting there clothed, that is no longer naked and exposed. But they see a man that is sitting there that may be cleaned up, but he still has his scabs. He still has his scars from the story, from the life that he was previously a part of. See, Jesus cleans us up, but he doesn't scrub our story. He doesn't scrub our background. He doesn't scrub the things that we've been through off of us. 
He leaves that there so that he can use it. What they see is a man sitting there, sane, a man that is no longer violent, a man that is no longer screaming, a man that is coherent and that is in his right mind. And there are few places in Scripture that really illustrate what Paul writes to the Corinthians when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus has not stopped doing this. And for us, it's done even more. Yes, Jesus takes the bad things inside of us. He cleans it, and then he gets rid of it. But that's not where Jesus ends. Jesus then repurposes us from this life that we are living in the kingdom of darkness and through his death, burial, and resurrection, his work on the cross. He gives us his righteousness, and he repurposes us for a life that is meant to be spent in him. He repurposes everything inside of us. And he doesn't just say, all right, go get him, killer. But he gives us his spirit. So that it's not by our strength, not by our might, but by his power, his strength, and his might. And he doesn't leave us to go somewhere else as we're about to see Jesus do. But he remains present in our lives. They see a man that was demon-possessed, that terrified them. And now they see a man that is completely sane and in his right mind. And what happens? They're scared all the more. Verses 15 through 17, why were they scared? It's probably a mix of two things. If you just watch your entire life savings, life spendings, and 2,000 pigs just run off a cliff, you're probably wondering, well, what am I supposed to do now Jesus. You're probably thinking about the spiritual or about the material and what you just lost over the spiritual goodness, the spiritual well-being of this man. There's also another side that we have to take into account, and that is that if Jesus is powerful enough to override, to overpower, and to subdue this man that had 6,000 demons within him, this man that's been terrorizing our town, our people, our friends, our family for who knows how long, then how powerful is this Jesus, right? Jesus just shows up on the scene. He gets off a boat, and he starts wrecking havoc over this area as far as these people are concerned. So what do they do? They beg him to go away. Why do they do that? Because they are not sure of what he is capable of. They are not sure what could happen next. What happens is they are so concerned about their own well-being that they do completely miss the spiritual well-being of this man. And I would encourage us as a church not to do that same thing. Not to get so caught up in our material well-being that we completely miss what Jesus is doing around us. Not to get so caught up in the things that we want, that we're striving for, in the things we invest our money in, and how well our jobs are going, in the herd of pigs in our life, and that we actually look around and we say, oh, Jesus, you are actually using these things to bring about goodness and spiritual well-being in other people. But instead, we get so focused in on who we are and our tiny, small, little stories that we remove ourselves from the stories of God, and we dismiss ourselves from what's going on over here, and we just focus on and worship ourselves, our lives, and our things. So my encouragement to us as a church this morning, my challenge is to wake up from this and to realize what Jesus is doing around you. Realize sometimes Jesus does things that are inconvenient to us, but that are convenient to that person's eternity and to embrace that with everything that we have. 
Jesus doesn't just clean us up. Jesus doesn't stop there. In verses 18 through 20, we see that Jesus repurposes us. 18 through 20 reads, And he was getting into the boat. They ran him off. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him. This is Jesus. Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Fourth point this morning. Jesus commissions us to go out. Jesus commissions us to go out. This guy had a big case of the I want to stay right here. He is not the first person in scripture to come down with this unseen thing, but he is certainly one of them. We see this in another point in scripture where Peter is on the Mount of Transfiguration and he is with Jesus and the glory of Jesus has just shone down upon him and it's not just Jesus there, but it's also Moses, it's also Elijah. I often wonder, just extracurricular, how did he know that was Moses and Elijah? Did Jesus uh, introduce them? I'm not sure. But one thing Peter did want to do was he wanted to build three tents. Jesus, I am a pretty handy guy. I want to build a tent for you. I want to build a tent for Moses. I want to build a tent for Elijah. And I want to sit up here on this mountain. And I want to sing Kumbaya until you come and do whatever kind of kingdom thing you've been trying to explain to us that you're going to do this whole time. Jesus said, no, Peter, we can't stay up here. We see it again in the lives of the, the disciples after they have been given the Great Commission, literally the thing that was supposed to kick them in the tail and get them going. We see in Acts 1, verses 6 through 11, that they are stuck staring into the sky, right? Jesus just gave them the Great Commission. He ascends into the clouds, and they're just, like, jaw is on the floor. Maybe their beards are on the floor, and they're just staring up into space. Is he going to come back down? I don't know. Like, Jesus, where'd you go? He gave them the Great Commission, and it takes an angel coming along to get them unstuck from that situation. We see this. Jacob and I have certainly seen this in our days and our experience in student ministry. A student goes to summer camp. A student goes to fall retreat, and they experience God in a mighty, powerful way, in a, in a moment that is solely focused on Jesus. And guess what? They never want to go home. They want to stay there in the presence of God and what they experience there at camp, but eventually, you got to go home. This man that has just been delivered is going through that exact same thing. He is begging Jesus, let me stay right here at your side. And maybe, maybe it's fear for him. Maybe he is afraid that these demons are going to come back and try to move back into their apartment within him. But I think more than anything, it's that this man has tasted and seen the goodness of Jesus. And he wants to stay right there in that moment with him. But what we need to see is that we were not meant to stay, but that we were meant and designed to get on our way. What does Jesus say to this man? He says, go home. Go to the place you live, to the place you know. To your friends, go to the people you know and the people that know you. And tell them two things, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. How does this play out in our lives? 
how are we to be the church and display the kingdom with this same strategy that Jesus gives this previously possessed man? We're to realize that we are called to do the same. We have not may not have been, I'm not going to speak for everybody, we may not have been delivered from some crazy possession story, maybe that is not your past, but there are things that God has done in your life that are absolute miracles if you look at what it took in God's great divine orchestration for him to get those things taken care of in our lives. We're not supposed to sit on those things. We are supposed to put those to use. There's a story of how you went from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light all by the work of the king. Why are we hiding those things? Why are we collecting dust like fossils in a museum of Christendom when we are called to be out in the trenches of war trying to see a rescue take place from God through us and our cooperation with him to people that are lost, dying, and will go to hell? We've got to wake up. We've got to stand up, we've got to get unstuck, and we've got to get going. So what is it that we need to do? We need to go home. We need to go to the place that we live, that we work, that we play, to the place that we know and the place that we are known, to the people that we know, to your friends. Go to your people. Go to your spouse. Go to your kids. Go to your family. Go to your coworkers. Go to the places where people know you, and you know people. It's a lot like cheers, okay? Everybody knows your name. That's where you need to go. What do we need to do there? We need to tell them. Tell them two things. How much the Lord has done for us. How we could not save ourselves but needed a Savior. And how he saved us by giving his life for our sin on the cross. Jesus in my place for my sin on the the cross. But don't stop there, because it's so easy to say that I needed Jesus and Jesus saved me, but there's another step. Tell them how he has had mercy on you. Church, when is it that we need mercy? It's when we mess up, and we are slow to admit the times in our lives when we have messed up, but guess what? This is a room full of sinners, and I am the chief. We have all messed up, and that's exactly why we needed to be saved. If there was no mess-ups in our life, if we were perfect people, then we would hold ourselves to the level of Jesus. But he was the only one who has ever been perfect. Therefore, he was the perfect sacrifice for you. To take those mess-ups, to not only clean them up, but to repurpose them. So tell people, don't omit that from the story. Because when you communicate how you have fallen and how God brought you from the rock bottom to where you are today, what that does is that doesn't bring shame on you. What that does is that gives glory to God. So let's give God the glory, every bit of it. What happens next? He is obedient. He is unstuck. He tells. Who does he tell? It says he went to the Decapolis. That is a loosely connected group of 10 cities. This guy didn't just go to a few people that he knew. Maybe he was really well-known. Maybe this guy was a celebrity. Maybe this guy went out and he just told everybody. But this is an area where 10 cities were gathered. This guy tells everyone. What Mark is recording here through Peter probably speaking it to him is the first missionary to the Gentile people. And what was the mission that he went out to proclaim as he was commissioned by Jesus? It's that Jesus confronted the demonic. Jesus conquered the destructive. 
that Jesus cleaned him up and made him new, and now Jesus commissioned him to live his life with a purpose and tell his story. And what happened after that? It says that the people marveled. Don't hide that little light of your story, of your testimony that Jesus has given you. But man, let it shine. Because when you do, yes, you may face opposition. Yes, you may encounter a couple of awkward conversations. But what we want for the people to do is see how God has moved in our lives, how we were hopeless, and now we are hopeful, all because of the good news of Jesus. And what we want them to do is to marvel because of how great he is. Not anything about ourselves but all about him. Let's pray. Let's ask him to do that in our lives now.